So here's where I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we read God's Word together. Um, you can follow along in your Bibles, or I think we have it all printed for you in the bulletin uh, as well. We're going to read the first 28 verses. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God, and Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. And to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterward, I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand. And you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. And who did those great signs in our sight, and preserved us in all the way that we went, and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God, he is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you 
and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. This is God's word to the people of Israel and to us uh, today. Let's pray together. Lord God, we do praise you and we thank you for this, your word. A word that teaches, that encourages, that admonishes us as your people. And we pray now, Holy Spirit, that you would speak through this word, that you would speak through your servant. That we might grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That we might grow in our affection for Jesus. Loving you, O God, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We ask you to do this now in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So how do you learn what not to do? Maybe I should phrase that in the positive. How do you and I learn what to do? I think there are several different ways that we learn things that we've all utilized at one point or another. We listen carefully to those that we trust. Maybe we receive some some good direction, some good advice. You know, Brad, you're not going to want to take that particular road into town at this hour because it's a parking lot. You're not going to go anywhere. All right, that's a word I can trust and learn from that. Maybe we, we listen or we study the experiences of those who have gone before us and that they've done something that we want to do or something we want to try and so we, we listen. I think of a, you know, cooking. Maybe you have a favorite recipe, favorite barbecue recipe or grit recipe. You, know, you put anything with grits, right? Um, and so you have the, the, the recipe card and it lists the ingredients there, but it's those special notes at the bottom that are helpful, right? The, you know, this is the kind of meat you're going to want to buy, or this is, this is how long it needs to, to marinate. Uh, those things that that we learn from, from those who have gone before. And then I think the most common way of learning something is that good old-fashioned give it a shot, right? By experience. I was uh, reminded a couple days ago that today, in fact, is the opening day for Major League Baseball. And um, so that, that's exciting, time to dust off the gloves. And I look forward to playing catch with anyone who wants to, to take me up on that. But when you're learning to play catch, and the line drive is, is, is coming at you, and you keep your glove down here, you're going to learn very quickly um, what not to do, right? So the next time you raise your glove and you catch that line drive. Sometimes the only way to learn is uh, through experience. So in this farewell address that we have from Joshua, he's really offering all three of these methods of learning to which Israel can respond. He is speaking as one with authority. He says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. He is a man that they can trust. 
He speaks the, the word of God that they can trust. He shares in their experiences. As one who has gone before them uh, under the care and direction of the Lord, uh, they have experienced firsthand Joshua's willingness, the Lord's willingness and power in fighting for them uh, and his provision for the land. And so, so the people have a decision to make. There's a choice that's before them that they have to take seriously. And so for them to learn, for them to respond rightly to Joshua's words, he, he lays out the foundation for what they must know, for who they are, where they've been under God's direction. That, that's how we're going to look at this closing chapter, the very fame of God and the response of his people, the fear and faithfulness to which uh, we are called the fame of God and the fear of his people. So the opening verses give us one of these great redemptive summaries of the Old Testament. You can look in, near the end of Deuteronomy, a couple places in Samuel. Uh, there was God's hand from the very, very time of the patriarchs all the way into the present. And when we know, which the people of Israel are intended to know, that the present is always shaped by the past. That they are to respond to God based on what he has done. What is true of their relationship to him. We spent a few hours with the Hensleys on Monday night. And uh, Tamara put an incredible meal uh, together for us uh, to enjoy. And uh, we enjoyed visiting. And, and while I was you know, walking around in, uh, in one of the hallways... Some beautiful pictures that are on the wall there. And one of them caught my attention because it's a picture of John with all of the, the kids. And on the top, it just says, what we love about Daddy. And, um, and it's, it's precious because all the kids have written a little line on there. Even Catherine, I think, wrote on there. It was amazing. Um, but what they love, you know, Daddy, you, you carry me to bed. You, you put, put me uh, to bed. Um, or you're, you're compassionate and kind. Or you're a Jedi master or something like that. It was a very special tribute for the family uh, and for nosy pastors, you know, walking the hallway. But please invite me to your house. I'm not going to make every illustration out of everything I see. Um, and I'll ask you first, right, tomorrow? I'll ask you first, yeah. Uh, but why do we do this? Uh, why do we honor moms and dads and uh, try and express our love for them in these unique ways? It's because we have a relationship with them. And I realize that not all relationships with moms and dads are the same. Very few are what they could be, I'm sure. But these are the ones that know us the best. These are the ones that have changed us and clothed us and fed us, nurtured us. Things that we could not do for ourselves, our dads and moms have done for us. In most cases, they're the ones who have loved us taking care of us. So what the, what the people of Israel have learned, what they've experienced, is that God has proven himself faithful and trustworthy every step of the way. Like, like a parent for a child, he has done for them what they could never do for themselves. The Lord's delivered them. He's fought for them. He's settled them in a place to worship him alone. They exist for him. I mean, how many times did we read in this chapter, 
I gave, I sent, I bought, I brought. You see, in Israel's history, it is the Lord who is the main character. And he's just as responsible for the past generations as he is for the present generation. See, in many places in the ancient Near East, uh, ancestors uh, were worshipped. They were treated with very high regard. They were even sacrifices were even offered to ancestors. But this was not true for Israel. Their ancestors were not deities. They, they, they were ruled by God as part of his plan. So the only thing that is really special about Israel is the God who has redeemed them. They're, they're, they're nothing significant in and of themselves. Uh, they have nothing apart from the Lord. Church family, this, there's nothing more that can be said of us. And this is not intended to be a depressing word, but the Lord does not need us to accomplish his purposes. He has provided for you and for me what we could never provide for ourselves. He's worked out our salvation. He's offered forgiveness and freedom in Christ when you and I would have none of it. A life restored to God, the heritage of Israel, is that they were not the people of God, and now they are the people of God. The heritage for the Christian is that we are not the people of God, but now we are by his immeasurable grace and mercy. John Newton penned the words of amazing grace, how sweet the sound saved a wretch like me. He really knew what he was talking about. For himself, for all those who've been set free from the bondage, the slavery of sin. Maybe you remember that John Newton was a slave captain. He took part firsthand in the the abuse and the filth of slavery. But he learned the filth of his own heart before a holy and righteous God who was the only one that could do anything about it. The only one who could change him. And that's our story. I pray that's your story. Paul's words to the Ephesians, chapter 2, really is a wonderful parallel to this closing section of Joshua. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's your history. That's my history. Or that that is a present reality apart from Christ. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So like Israel before us, we need to hear of the Lord's faithfulness. We need to hear of his provision. We need to hear that we have nothing apart from him so that we can serve him each day. I trust that's humbling for us. It should should be humbling. It should encourage us to be maybe a little more tender with those who are outside the body of Christ. 
you know, as we interact with others, whether it's at work or at school, on the playground, on the ball field, understanding that, yes, he, this is me before. This is me in my, my history. I, I was there in my, my attitudes, in my, my language, what it is I value. There's nothing about me. Not any better in some way that God would somehow look upon me, but he's done something marvelous in my life. It should also give us a greater sensitivity toward those who are within the body of Christ, towards our brothers and sisters, those sitting right next to you. When we know where we've been, when we know the condition of our hearts, it makes us a little more patient with one another as we share the journey. So our heritage, what God has graciously done for us in Christ, it should call us then to commitment as moms and dads and grandpas and grandmas and sons and daughters and employers and employees to fill each of those roles each day wholeheartedly unto the Lord. And that's where Joshua goes next in this parting word. You see it there in verse 14. Because of all you've just heard, because of who you are, where, where you were without the Lord, now fear him and serve him in faithfulness. So Joshua charges the people very plainly. You can serve the gods that your father served. You can serve the gods that they worship in these parts. Or you can serve the Lord, the one who has made covenant with you. Serving is, is a major theme here. Who will you devote yourself to? Who will you go after? And it's fascinating. If we were to go back to the very beginning of the story, Genesis 35, Jacob commands his household to put away the foreign gods that are among them. He actually, actually buries them under a tree in Shechem, where the people are standing right now. So the people of Israel, the people of Jacob's line, are right there, standing on top of these buried gods. Would they worship them, or would they serve the one living and true God? So make your choice. But as for me and my house, we're going to continue to serve the Lord. Joshua has proven his allegiance over and over again. Uh, there was no mistaking his intentions uh, in serving. And there's no middle ground. The Lord is a holy and jealous God. There is none like him. He is the one and only. And he will not share that glory with another. What is your choice? What is your choice? Does that sound familiar? Maybe that should sound familiar as we think back on the story. Do we hear echoes of a choice by our first parents in the garden? God had provided for Adam and Eve all that they needed life, all they needed to worship, and they had a choice to listen to him or to serve a rival God. And they chose poorly. And brothers and sisters, that choice is still there. There for Israel, it's still there for you and me. As image bearers of God, we have the freedom to choose. He's, he's given a, a moral ability to choose by the sovereign working of his spirit. See, those who are dead in sin, they cannot seek. They cannot choose the things of God. That's what we read in, in Ephesians chapter 2. 
But those who have been made alive, whose hearts have been changed, can seek. Now they actually have an ability to choose. It was the, uh, the great pastor and theologian Jonathan Edwards, uh, early 18th century during the Great Awakening uh, in this land. He said, seeking after God is the main business of the Christian life. Seeking after God is the main business of the Christian life. Choosing over and over and over again to serve him. And that's Joshua's charge to Israel. Will you choose and continue to choose the Lord over all others? And, uh, and so the people respond, and they respond. Maybe we're surprised, maybe we're not, but yes, of course. How can we do anything else than serve the Lord who has uh, fought for us and provided for us? But jo Joshua knows them. He knows them perhaps a little bit better than they know themselves. See, he's lived among them now for 110 years. He's watched them all of his life. He said, really? You know, our God is a holy and jealous God. You're, you're not able to serve him. Hey, I know you well. Think about this for a minute. Think about what it is you're saying. It's not a trivial choice here. You're like, like America's Funniest Home Videos. You've got three choices at the end, and everybody is happy. And, and, uh, this is life and death choice here life and death consequences that go with it. And church family, here's the scary part. And it gets a little scarier as the chapter moves to a close. The people do not acknowledge the truth of what Joshua has just said. No, we will serve the Lord. We can do it. Kind of like that, you put that big piece of meat on the child's plate Mom or dad reaches over to cut it, and no, no, I do it, I do it, right? See, it's a response that sounds, it sounds spiritual. It sounds courageous, but it should grab our attention. They cannot serve the Lord casually. They cannot expect him, or they, can, they cannot expect to serve him at all apart from his help. So rather than falling on their faces before God, and saying, you're right, help us, Lord. We cannot remain faithful apart from you. They declare their will to serve. And it says in verse 31, it's, it's printed, we didn't read that uh, verse, but that they did serve during the days of Joshua and all those who were, who were there and had seen the work of the Lord. But what about those who came after? See, the attitude of the people in these closing words it's an indication that not all may be well on the horizon for Israel. Will they remain faithful to this covenant? You only have to turn like one or two pages in your Bible to get the answer. Judges chapter 2, just read a verse here. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. So the people are very confident during this farewell address, but their witness would soon stand against them. Joshua sets up a large stone as a witness. It's the seventh such memorial that we read about 
uh, in Joshua, and his words in verses 22 and 23, they really stand out. It's the, the heart of his charge. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. You know, what was Joshua seeing that led him to say something like this? You know, it's not likely that there were you know, statues and these foreign gods propped up all over the place and people offering sacrifices to them. I mean, we know the consequences of that. If we go back a few chapters to chapter 22, that, that would have been treated very seriously. So it's not blatant. So why these words? Put away foreign gods and incline your heart. Stretch out. Bend your will to the Lord. Joshua knew the situation. He could see the temptation. I think he could perceive through the Spirit of God in these words, divided hearts. The ease of mingling with their neighbors and associating with God in a, in a casual, complacent way. To be a very good fan of the Lord, but not a committed follower of Him. I mean, we know what's coming for Israel unless they incline their heart to the Lord. It was King David's prayer. It's in Psalm 143. He says these words, he's on the run, he feels lost, helpless. But then he says, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. That is a heart inclined to the Lord, yielding to his mercy, to his deliverance with every breath. Church, we need to hear the charge of the Lord to faithfulness. Will we serve as Joshua and his household, or will we pay lip service to the covenant? I'll serve. Sign me up. You know, I've got the wristband, I've got the t-shirt, I've got the Sunday school record. Um, and yet our hearts remain complacent, uninterested in the things of God. There's a stark difference between being a fan of Jesus and a follower of Christ. Uh, Kyle Idleman, maybe you've heard that name. He's a pastor in, in Louisville. He's, he's written several books. This one, uh, Not a Fan, is um, fairly popular. Uh, but he talks about, he compares fans and followers of Jesus. And I'd love to un unpack that some more. We don't have time to do that this morning. But I want to give you a few questions just to diagnose for yourself. Whether you're cheering on the sidelines as a fan or you are walking the dusty road as a follower of Christ? Have you made a decision for Jesus, or have you committed to Jesus? You know, we, we say we follow Jesus. There, there can be that, that mental assertion that, yeah, okay, I, I, I put these dots together. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a follower. But then those words are never lived out. It's a lot more common than we think. You know, we, we raise our hands. Maybe we've said a prayer. Maybe we've even gone through the waters of baptism. And the church rejoices, and then that's it. That's a good fan, but not what Christ calls us to. He calls us to walk, to move with hands and feet in obedience. Do you know about Jesus, or do you really know Jesus? Do you know about Jesus, 
or do you really know Jesus? This is often confused in the church. I think it's especially dangerous for confessional churches that place a high value on teaching, a high value on, on study. So that knowledge about the Bible and knowledge about Christianity, it's confused with growth and maturity in Christ. Now, don't misunderstand me on this one. Uh, knowledge and study is important. Our faith should seek understanding. But we can have a knowledge without that, that personal relationship and intimacy with our Savior. And if we have that, if we are enjoying this intimate communion with our God, then we're going to have a desire to learn, a desire to study all the more. There's another one. Uh, is Jesus one of many, or is he the one and only? Is he one of many, or the one and only? Just imagine this couple out on a date, and maybe it's their first date, who knows, whatever. And they're at one of the old-fashioned restaurants where you still have to go and pay at the cash register, and... Uh, so the guy pulls out his wallet, and, and there she sees a picture of herself in his wallet. And in a moment of distraction with the cashier, uh, she sees that the picture of, of the last date was right behind hers, and the one before, and the one before that. How do you think that date's going to end? If, if that relationship is going to grow and go anywhere, then she will insist that she's the only picture in that wallet, right? Um, Jesus, Jesus not, it does not share his affection with another. Following him requires your whole heart. So just you know, take an assessment. Gauge your heart a little bit. Where, um, you know, where is your comfort? You know, how, how do you spend your money? What gets you the most frustrated? As you, as you begin to answer these questions, it, it points at, where our hearts are divided. He must be the one and only. If following Jesus cost you everything, would it still be worth it? Now, don't answer that question too fast. One more diagnostic, a fan or follower. Are you more focused on the outside than the inside? Uh, these are the Pharisees. These are the play actors, Jesus referred to them as such many times. Uh, I think this is the one that hits us in the gut the hardest if we've been in the church for any period of time. Uh, fans of Jesus can look like really good followers, usually very good at keeping the rules. So it makes it hard to discern at times between a fan and a follower of Christ. Uh, let me uh, read you a, a paragraph here. I think Kyle does a great job of giving just some practical things to think about. It says these religious types were the fans that Jesus seems to have the most trouble with. Fans who will walk into a restaurant and bow their heads to pray before a meal just in case someone is watching. Fans who won't go to R-rated movies at the theater but have a number of them saved on their DVR at home. Fans who may feed the hungry and help the needy and then they make sure they work it into every conversation for the next two weeks. Fans who make sure people see them put in their offering at church but they haven't considered reaching out to their neighbor who lost a job and can't pay the bills. Fans who like seeing other people fail because in their minds it makes them look better. Fans whose primary concern is raising their children in raising their children is what other people think. Fans who are reading this and assuming I'm describing someone else. Fans who have worn the mask for so long 
that they have fooled even themselves. A fan of Jesus has no inner passion or relationship with the king. He's little attention to their hearts. The follower inclines his heart, inclines her heart to the Lord, vigilant in keeping the heart. Because we know the heart is, is prone to wander, to do all those things that we just mentioned. So Israel makes a forceful statement of faith in chapter 24. But the true strength of that faith will be tested. That moment-by-moment choice will be tested. It will be tested for us. Can we keep our hearts? Can we serve the Lord faithfully out of power and resolve? He said, be holy, for I am holy. Jesus repeats this in the New Testament. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Can you serve him like this? all of your days. If you know your heart at all, then you know that answer. The charge that we have been given to commitment and faithfulness, we are incapable of keeping apart from Christ. Only Jesus has served the Father with complete obedience. Only Jesus can stand and say, yes, I am committed, and has done so perfectly, without fail. And if we have inclined our hearts to him as Savior and Lord, then his faithful service is ours. We can serve without fear. We can serve without the the fear of punishment or, or shame, because he served perfectly on our behalf. We have a witness to this. It's not a, not a stone memorial that Joshua set up with the people. Our witness is right here behind me. The cross. The Lord has provided what we could not provide for ourselves. And what makes us think that he's going to stop doing that? If we incline our hearts to him today. So we see faithful leadership in service in the life of Joshua. Uh, It's anticipating the absolute faithfulness and service of the Lord Jesus. Will we learn and remain faithful? And Joshua, at the end of this chapter, just like Moses, he's given a title, the servant of the Lord. He doesn't start out that way, but at the end of the journey, he's given that title. At the end of your days, Will someone be able to say, he was a servant of the Lord? She was a a servant of the Lord, a follower in the midst of so many fans. My prayer is that our confession would be that of Joshua, and later of the apostle who says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. May that be so for us. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you that you have done for us what we could never do for ourselves. That you have captured us by your love. That you have redeemed us through the sacrifice of your son. 
living a life that we could not live and cannot live, dying the death that we deserve, that we might live forever in your presence. We thank you for this gift. We thank you for your word, Lord. Work it deep in our hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.